What is it that constitutes a true church of Jesus Christ? And then I would ask, conversely, what is it that makes a church a false church? Is there a clear litmus test? Is there a biblical measure by which we can assess it and not go wrong in our judgment? Many of you have come to Hope Bible Church from previous churches, various church backgrounds. Some of you fled what you perceived to be false teaching. Maybe even you called your previous church a false church. Others were just dismayed at uh, compromises that you witnessed. Maybe they were doctrinal compromises or compromises in practice, and you saw this in your previous church, and it grieved you, and you washed ashore here at Hope Bible Church, and we took you in, uh, and hope is hope. It's a bright, shining light, and we have an incredible number of backgrounds to uh, people's religious training here, and it's a delight to bring everyone together and be unified around the book, right? The Word of God. Um, maybe in your mind, those leaders crossed a line, and uh, it's a line that was in your mind. It was a line you drew in the sand, and you thought, you know, I can tolerate this and this, but when they did that, I can no longer worship here. I can no longer attend here. And so you left. Maybe it was the role of women you saw in the church. Maybe it was the wrong expression of charismatic gifts. Maybe it was a lack of church discipline towards some blatant sexual sin, and you were witness to that. Maybe it was weaker theology that you would hear constantly in the classroom, maybe Arminian theology. Maybe it was just leadership that was too hands-off. It might have been a number of things. But do you consider that church that you left a false church? The truth is that a church can remain true, a true church of Christ, and still have errors in it. Did you know that? It can have doctrinal errors, and it can have errors in practice and still be a true church. Just read any of the New Testament letters, because those were all true churches. And what do you find in there? You find many deviations, doctrinal confusion in the letters themselves. Take a scan through the seven churches of Asia in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, if you want a little homework following this message. You will see that they had doctrinal confusion, they had worldliness, they had some unsaved and bad teachers in their congregation, some had cold hearts, still their lamp was shining and Jesus was walking among their lampstand in the heavenly places testifying they were a true church, though Christ had to warn some of them, I'm about to take your lamp away, meaning they were about to fall into apostasy. Truly, it is amazing the patience of the Lord Jesus Christ with each and every one of his churches. And let us not forget, every local church on this planet is his church, not ours. How much error and worldliness he puts up with as long as we stay true to what? As long as we stay true to there's something there, something that is non-negotiable. And I would, with many, many throughout church history, say that what we must stay true to is the core teachings of the Christian faith, the foundational Christian truths, what some used to call the fundamentals of the faith. 
All believers need to understand that there are core and primary doctrines that define true Christianity, and then there are secondary doctrines that are meant for brothers in Christ to debate, that are meant for us to refine as we talk with one another and uh, sort out. True churches, with their flaws, are still to be counted as brothers in the Lord Christ. They are to be built up. They are not to be torn down. For we, too, are a church with flaws. Do you not agree? Some true churches teach certain doctrines incorrectly. That doesn't mean they're a false church. What they teach about baptism may be wrong, or church discipline, or elders, or the Holy Spirit. Or, for those of you in the hermeneutics class, they may have bad hermeneutics. Or more often, we may see that they lack consistency. You go and read their doctrinal statement, and that sounds good, but then you look at what they try to do in church, and it doesn't seem to fit what they wrote and said they believe. And all of these errors, really, every last error, has some bad consequence to it. It's not like they're all benign. Unbiblical teaching, no matter what level it is, always hurts. It hurts the growth of people. It hurts the holiness of the church. It hurts the witness of the church in the community. Why do you think that our leadership here at Hope Bible Church is so committed to Grace Advance Mid-Atlantic? We know we're not a church unto ourselves. We're part of a larger group of people. We have a Bible institute, and we want to have an impact beyond our church. We want to help other churches grow in their doctrine. We're so committed to our conference in October. We want everyone involved in that conference because it's not just about a conference. It's about a movement. It's about building up other churches. We have uh, other kinds of teachings where we connect pastors with pastors because we want those pastors, as long as they're holding to the fundamentals of the faith, to be built up. We're part of a greater body of believers, and, and their health should be our concern. In fact, the theme for Gamma is churches helping churches. We even now have our radio program with a hope to impact people beyond our church. We put that in our vision statement. It articulates the vast need, not just to build ourselves up, but to look out for those in other churches that are brothers and sisters in Christ and may need some refining even as we may learn some lessons from them as well. But that dividing line as to what constitutes a true church must not be drawn too tightly. Or in your zeal for the faith, You will literally cut out people who are our true brothers in Christ. And some of them, though we would disagree with some things they say, are doing a significant work for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do not want to be in opposition to that work. On the other hand, and there is another hand, there are in the New Testament doctrines that are presented and explained that are so foundational that they are non-negotiable. And if you step outside of the boundary of those doctrines, whatever you may call yourself, you are no longer part of Christ's church. You cannot rightly call yourself a Christian. It may be a church, but now it is a false church. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 2, and in the letter of 2 John, verses 7 through 9, just as an example, It indicates that the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ 
in one person, and thus, by extension, the doctrine of the Trinity itself is not a debatable doctrine. One who denies it denies the faith and does not have God, John says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 14, it declares that the bodily resurrection from the dead and Jesus' bodily resurrection is undeniable. And if one denies it, his faith is worthless. In other words, he's lost in his sins. Once bodily resurrection is denied, Christianity ends. Belief in the inspiration and the authority of Scripture above all other books and all other messages or messengers is required throughout all of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Indeed, we are told anyone who adds to or takes away from God's revelation is denounced in the most severe terms in Revelation 22, 18, and 19, guaranteed to face the wrath of God for tampering with the Word of God. In terms of Christian practice, the little letter of Jude in verse 4 says anyone who takes the idea of God's grace and twists it and turns it into a justification for practicing any kind of lewdness or sexual immorality that they literally have denied the master of the Lord Jesus Christ by their practice. They are ungodly persons and have twisted the gospel into an excuse to do sin. That is what we see in the world today in the tolerance doctrine, that God tolerates rather than judges sin. When you hear on the news that some denomination has split down the middle over the homosexual issue, some saying that homosexuality is absolutely incompatible with the Christian faith and others embracing it and saying God is inclusive and tolerating, you're seeing a proper kind of a split. You're seeing people that are splitting from a practice that cannot be maintained with the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot be a Christian and endorse that practice. You have abandoned the faith you have denied Jesus Christ as your master and Lord. And not just that sin, but any sexual sin. They must split because embracing the sin is denying Christ. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5 are listed as the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and are undeniable, cannot be denied without abandoning the Christian faith. And by the way, along with that, our admission that we are all sinners because there's no need for the death of Christ if we're not sinners. Denial of the gospel, or how about this, redefinition of the gospel is a denial of Jesus Christ and is a step outside of Christianity. Today, we encounter another fundamental doctrine, basic, foundational a fundamental of the faith, one that is taught or illustrated all over the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament. It's particularly developed in a number of chapters in the book of Romans and in Galatians. This doctrine is the dividing line from a gospel that saves to a false gospel that cannot save anybody. It is the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. Not salvation by faith, salvation by faith alone. Or as stated more precisely, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in who? In Christ alone. 
sola fide, as it is known historically. If a church preaches and teaches that doctrine, they are winning people for the kingdom of God. If not, no matter what else they may say about themselves and no matter what else you may find attractive about their church, they help the poor, they suffer persecution, they have really nice families, they march for life, I don't care what it is. If they don't affirm this doctrine, you must not affirm their church or their organization if you want to remain loyal to Jesus Christ. This is the watershed issue of our day. And today, we get to read about the time that God fixed the truth of this doctrine in the mind of the leaders of the early church. The text is Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. I want you to note the historical nature of what is happening this Sunday. We are about to cover 18 verses in one sermon at one time, and I really doubt that has ever happened in the history of our church before. But it's because so much is repeat, repetitive from chapter 10. But I'm going to read it. Follow along. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeding to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, Verse 5, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Acts 11 basically retells the entire episode of Acts 10. And since we had several messages then, if you're kind of joining us today, 
I would just ask you to go back and listen to those messages. I'm just going to survey chapter 11 and point out how it forms the the basis for the development in the mind of the church of this doctrine of sola fide, salvation by grace, by faith alone, faith in Christ alone. We're going to use this text, in other words, to launch into other portions of the New Testament and develop the doctrine of sola fide. So from this historical narrative, I want you to sort of face yourself this morning and ask yourself what kind of conviction you have about this doctrine. How important is this teaching to you? What place do you put in it, in your own priorities? Salvation is completely by faith in Jesus. It is not by keeping the law of Moses. It is not by doing any kind of a religious duty. It is not by your personal good life or good works. It's not even by a water baptism. How important is it to you that you understand that doctrine and you hold to it? I hope your conviction deepens through this. So let's first do our survey. Let's recount the lesson of sola fide from the history. The Jerusalem report in verses 1 through 3 is given first. We see that when Peter returned to Jerusalem, which, remember, is the mother church there in verses 1 through 3, his reception was what we would say was not good. (laughs) The leaders of the church were not on board with this lead apostle. Now, remember, this is the leader of the apostles. Uh, He has been the chief witness for the gospel all throughout Jerusalem, He's been their most relied upon apostle, and now he's been out there doing something, and he's come back, and the leaders almost unanimously are like, what on earth happened to you when you were gone, Peter? They objected to Peter, particularly treating the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? They're people who do not obey the law of God, right? They're not circumcised. They're not in covenant with God. They have no relationship with God, right? That's who they are, all the nations out there. He went to them, and he treated them like they were on par with the very people of God of Israel. He ate with them. He had fellowship with them. He stayed in their home, which was all those things that were denied if they were unclean. Well, Peter's explanation comes quickly in verses 4 through 15. In verse 4, Peter recounts everything in an orderly way. I, he, must have, he must have known the only way I'm really going to help everybody to understand this is to take them through step by step what I went through. Because this is so earth-shattering. This was so revolutionary to the Jewish mind. I mean, he might have thought of several ways of doing it. And I think he just said, you know what? I'm going to put them in my shoes and I'm going to walk them through everything that happened to me. And so he does this orderly. Let them learn the lessons that I learned. Let them walk in my shoes. In verses 5 through 7, Peter commences the story in Joppa. He tells of the prayer time that he had on the roof, then the trance he fell into, then the vision of the sheets that came down, then the voice that said, rise, Peter, kill and eat, even the unclean animals. Of course, in verse 8, Peter vehemently refused. That would be a violation of the law of God. He had never done that in all of his life. But look at verse 9. God made the correction, a correction for the new age. You're in a new age now. You're going to be part of the new covenant. That's what's behind it. And so God has cleansed these animals. You actually may eat those animals now. But the animals didn't just stand for the animals. Remember who they stand for? The Gentiles, right? They are not unclean anymore. They are not holy. Why not? Because God has made them clean. 
And so they must no longer be considered unholy. Things are changing. Verse 10, God had to present the vision three times to Peter. Why? (laughs) Because Peter was used to learning what he did from the Bible. And you're not just going to take one vision and change everything that you think you understand from the Bible, right? So God gave him one, and then God gave him two, and then God gave him three to make sure he just... He would, he knew this really came from God and it came down out of heaven. No misunderstanding in his mind. Of course, we remember from chapter 10, it still took Peter a little more contemplation to go with them and piece all of this together in his own mind. Now look at verses 11 and 12 as we continue surveying. Peter recounts the coordination of God's providence with the vision. Here he has a vision and the vision is repeated and what's going on simultaneous with the vision is people are in movement and all of that fits together too. And who can control all of that? And the answer is only God can do that kind of a thing. At that very moment when Peter is ending his vision, three from Cornelius's house in Caesarea arrive in Joppa right there at his house, the house he's staying at by the sea the very house where Peter is, and calling for Simon Peter. And then the Spirit of God, a third witness, speaks to Peter in some way and says, I want you to leave and go with these men and go without any misgivings. In other words, you don't know what it's all about yet, Peter, but trust me, go, I'm leading you. Now, given the confluence of all of those events, no one sitting in Peter's shoes, having had a vision, having seen the coordination of these men arriving and calling for him, and having the Spirit of God telling them to go, nobody in Peter's shoes would have acted differently than Peter if he was truly a man of God. And I think at this point in time, all of the elders, all of the pastors in the Jerusalem church, as they were stroking their Jewish beards and listening to this and trying to figure out what to do with this this incredible moment here where Peter is testifying to them, I think they were still on board and nodding their head. And I think they were just, all right, keep going. We're not quite there yet, but he's got them this far. Now look at verses 13 and 14. Cornelius gave his report to Peter when Peter arrived at Cornelius' home. And Peter was not alone. There were six Jewish men with him to make a total of seven men to be witnesses. And Cornelius told about an angel, hey, I'm just a soldier, I'm a centurion, I'm going about my business, I'm in my house, and an angel of God appeared to me, and this is what the angel told me to do. I'm just following his orders. I'm a man of authority, and when a heavenly visitor comes to me and tells me to do something, I'm under his authority, and I'm going to do what he said. So I got my guys together, and I sent them there to Joppa, and I obeyed the heavenly voice. Well, up till now, again, if you were sitting on that Jerusalem elder board, you would see that everything, everything so far was not being coordinated by Peter. This was not Peter going out in the boondocks somewhere and coming up with his own little doctrine. Peter, while he was out there, was being guided by God. This was all being orchestrated by God. The timing of it, the manner of it, everything, all of the lesson for every church that would come after this point in time. It was a lesson for all of us. God was orchestrating it all. In verse 15, Peter points out that 
Even when he was delivering his message, he was there finally in the Gentile home, and he opened his mouth, and he began to give his message. And in chapter 11, we don't even know what he said in the message. You have to go back to chapter 10 and say he had already started talking about Jesus' life, his miracle working, his, his death, and his resurrection, right? He'd actually gotten through the gospel. He began to explain the basic foundational truths about Jesus Christ. But Peter was midstream. He was speaking about Jesus. He was speaking about the gospel. And then God did something that was absolutely amazing. God testified to their believing hearts. The believing hearts of all of the Gentiles that Cornelius had gathered in his house that day. And he testified it this way, by pouring out the Holy Spirit of God down upon these Gentiles, upon these men and women, just the same way that the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Jews on the day of Pentecost a few years prior to this. So now heaven has added its own testimony to the matter. Heaven has made it clear, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God has included the Gentiles apart from, apart from keeping the law of God into Jesus' church, into the life of the kingdom of the Messiah of Israel. God gave his stamp of approval by giving them the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? There's no Latin terms in that text. You can't find the word sola fide there. You won't find the development of Romans chapter 3 and 4 and 5, the doctrine of justification in any of these words here in Acts 11. But what you just read is if God in heaven and Jesus Christ himself has received them fully into the life of the Holy Spirit and they have everlasting life and are saved and they did it all apart from the law of Moses, then guess what? Salvation is by faith alone, apart from any good deeds that they did. Peter's closing defense comes in verses 16 through 18 as we finish our survey. In verse 16, Peter reminds the Jews of another witness that spoke of this event. And really, he's quoting Jesus, but Jesus was quoting John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was that early witness. Who was he? He was the one who came and baptized with what element? Do you remember? Water, right? John was a man, just a man. And all he had a power and authority over was water. And so he took water in the Jordan River and he called people to express their sins and to repent, to turn from their sin and believe in the coming kingdom, in the coming king. And he baptized them in water. He was only able to use water. But Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus was able to use a greater element in his baptism ministry. Jesus really wasn't all that much interested in baptizing with water. He let his disciples do most of the baptizing in water. But what he did exclusively is he baptized in the Holy Spirit, and nobody else, nobody else can baptize in the Holy Spirit. Jesus, from heaven, from the right hand of God the Father, where he is right now, poured forth the Holy Spirit on these Gentiles, showing his control over the very Spirit of God. Now, brothers and sisters, since the Spirit of God is eternal and omnipresent and all-powerful, then anyone who controls the, the Spirit of God has to be God himself. That is a clear mark of the deity of Jesus Christ. And Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit from heaven on uncircumcised Gentiles. Verse 17 is the logical conclusion. If Jesus has accepted them, by faith alone, into his church. Look how Peter says it, very humbly. Verse 17, Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift 
as he gave to us also after believing, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I? Isn't that great? So Peter's not saying, I am the great apostle and I am sitting on my Pope throne and I'm going to give new doctrine for the church now and it's all me and you guys don't matter anymore. Peter wasn't like that at all. Instead, he says, who was I that I could stand in God's way? It's a very perilous thing to stand in the way of God's doctrines. Very perilous. Men should never let their personal beliefs contradict what God says in the Word. When God speaks, R.C. Sproul used to like to say, the debate is over. So nobody needs to add anything. They got the same gift as us. Well, was there any distinction? No distinction. How did they get it? Well, don't miss it. After believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, they heard about Jesus, they believed. What else did they do? Nothing. What happened to them? They got saved. By faith alone. Salvation is by faith in Jesus alone, plus nothing. That's the watershed doctrine. That is the great continental divide. If you're on one side of it, you're in a false church. If you're on the other side of it, you may have whatever problems you have. Work them out. (laughs) Refine your doctrine. Grow. Get stronger. But you are on the side of the brotherhood and the side of the community of the Spirit. Simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ saves a person from all of their sins. Are you a sinner here today? Every last one of your sins is covered by your faith in Christ alone. You need nothing else. And that ought to bring you to tears when you sing that and realize that. Don't add anything. Don't subtract anything. Well, the Jerusalem church agreed with Peter. You see this? And not only agreed, they rejoiced. Would you stare at verse 18 for a moment? Because that's a minor miracle of the heart. Sometimes we have miracles where water gets turned to wine, you know, and sometimes men's hearts just change. Do you realize how radical verse 18 is? That this entire Jewish mindset at this point in time accepted this truth right here and then? You have dozens of Jewish Christian leaders, elders and pastors, who just minutes ago were so strongly opposed to what Peter was doing in Caesarea. Obviously, they uh, they began their reasoning processes and they started their reacting long before they gathered their facts, and that's a giant no-no for anyone who sits on an elder board or a deacon board or in leadership. Never come to a conclusion until you first gather your facts, right? Well, they did, and that was their big boo-boo, but when they listened, they got it right. Verse 18, when they heard this, they quieted down. All their objections were over. They were left speechless. And they glorified God. They did want God to get all the glory. Look, these were good men. These were believers. These are good pastors here. And they were saying, well then, and here comes their conclusion. Notice there's not one dissenting voice. God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Repentance is just another way of saying faith. 
Faith is belief. It's your landing your faith and your trust in someone, your confidence in someone. Repentance is when you have a false belief and you stop believing the false thing and you turn and you land in faith on the true thing to believe in. So they're just two sides of the same coin. When they say God has granted repentance, they mean God has granted faith. And please notice that it is only God who grants repentance to people to believe in the first place. Men do not just decide to believe in Jesus. If you witness to somebody this week and they come to faith in Christ, it's not because you are a skilled evangelist. It's not because that person has decided to follow Jesus. It's because God opened their eyes and granted them faith. That's what's wrong with Arminian theology. It's a weak theology that gives way too much power to the human mind and perception. When the Bible says we're dead in our sins and we're blind and we're bound in sin, we don't have a will that can open up and say, you know what, I think today I'm going to decide to believe in Jesus. It just never happens that way. So that's why we don't teach Arminian theology, (laughs) because it's weak. God has to open the hearts. Saving faith is a gift from God, and that's what these elders rightly concluded. So there's your survey. Now, I want to take you in the second half of our message today through another survey. And it is only a survey of this beautiful doctrine of sola fide. It's illustrated here, but I want us to look at it taught in other places. I'm going to give you a few opening statements. The Gentiles that Jesus saved at Cornelius' house were lawbreakers. In 1 John chapter 3, it says sin is lawlessness. And so when you are a sinner, what that means is there's a... There's a moral law in this universe, and you are a breaker of that law. So you're a lawbreaker. So the question immediately becomes, how can God accept people and still remain a just God who upholds his law? If they're lawbreakers, doesn't he have to punish them and reject them? The doctrine of justification looks at the sinner standing as he would in God's courtroom. Think of a giant courtroom with God there. And asking the question, how can this lawbreaker be pronounced innocent by God when God, in fact, knows that he's a lawbreaker? How can God say he's innocent when God knows he's guilty? Justification by faith alone, sola fide, is the doctrine that is explained in Scripture that faith in Jesus alone is enough, is enough to justify a person in God's courtroom. Nothing beyond faith in Jesus is needed, nor will anything but faith in Jesus be taken into consideration when God makes his pronouncement. Simply put, man's good works, no matter how hard he tries, will never be able to erase even one violation of God's law, and, how, and who knows how many violations of God's law we have. So our good works are impotent in leading towards being declared innocent. Justification. What exactly is justification? Justification is a forensic declaration. What does the word forensic mean? Forensic has to do with legal proceedings in a court of law. It refers to matters that concern the judicial system, declarations that might be made in a courtroom. When a judge upholds the case of one party, that party is said to be justified. So if you're going to be justified, that's a good thing. And if you're justified before God, that's a very good thing, right? 
So justification is a legal pronouncement of innocence or righteousness in God's courtroom. Christian justification is when God declares the lawbreaker, the sinner, who's put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as justified, free from all condemnation. Dr. Wayne Grudem in his theology summarizes it this way. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and then, two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. Like, I love it in the courtrooms when they, you know, they uh, crack the gavel and they say, you know, he's innocent or something like that. That moment when the judge says innocent is the moment of justification. Very important, justification is not, is not God first making us practice the Christian life or making us first practice good Christian living and then after we practice that, declaring us to be innocent. God pronounces us righteous before we ever act righteously. Do you remember the thief on the cross? What did he do righteous on the cross? Nothing. Even when we're practicing ungodliness, he declares us to be righteous. You say, how can he do that? It's a very good question. Since justification is merely a declaration from God's mouth, it doesn't actually change anything inside of us. Dr. John MacArthur in his book, Faith Works, puts it this way. In fact, justification affects no actual change whatsoever in the sinner's nature or character. Justification is a divine judicial edict. It changes our status only. It doesn't change your thinking, doesn't change your behavior. Now, isn't that beautiful? Your status is changed before God. Still, the question remains, how can God do that? Most people nowadays in our culture think that God is way too loving to judge people and punish them and send them to hell. Have you heard that? They don't even think they need to be justified because they're not even a sinner. So they wouldn't be interested in this doctrine of justification. Well, that, beloved, is a false teaching. It comes from the mainline liberal Protestant denominations that have been teaching the lack of God's judgment for now about a 100 years in America, decades. In America, the liberal mainline churches have been teaching a false gospel, denying God's judgment against sin, denying the sinfulness of man, denying God's need and desire to have justice in this world. They deny the wrath of God, and they are false churches. And that liberal theology, by the way, is what feeds liberal politics. That's why in liberal politics, they work so incredibly hard not to see individual people saved, but to see society restructured. Because to them, it is all about changing education, government grabbing control and ruling over our lives, solving problems that way, because the problem is not with the nature of man that needs to be saved. The problem is with society. The Bible says the exact opposite, that the problem with man and man in society is his heart. Liberalism says the problem is with society's structures. Let's change them. God says the problem's with your heart. Let's preach repentance and let each man be responsible for his own sin. But if you recognize your sin, you're going to want to be pronounced innocent by God, right? If you want to be innocent, then you're going to have to go about doing it one of two ways. 
Either you're going to have to obey every last one of God's laws, which I think by now that option's gone, or God's going to have to come up with a way where he can remain just and justify you even though he knows you're guilty. In other words, for us, it's impossible. Now, if you're reading Romans that develops this doctrine and you are in chapter 2, it teaches that only those who keep the law perfectly can be declared innocent by God. And then you get into chapter 3 of Romans, and it says, by the way, none of us kept the law of God. For all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. And you go to Romans 3.10, it says, none are righteous. It's like, well, what are we going to do? Exactly. There's nothing you can do. You should feel condemned. You should know you're under the condemnation of God. You should feel rejected by God. If you don't, you can never get into the kingdom of God until you're aware of that in yourself. If God could give you a law that would allow you to be justified, say, okay, you disobeyed all these other laws, I'm going to give you one law, just go obey that law, then he'd give you that law, you could obey it, and everything would be fine. But there is no such law like that. In Galatians 3.21, it says, For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But he goes on in Galatians and says, but it wasn't. Ecclesiastes 7.20, from the Old Testament, There is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So even though God loves us, contrary to the liberal church, God's justice is good and needs to be satisfied. But guess what? God's justice is the obstacle to our justification. How are you going to satisfy God's justice? God is not going to just pronounce guilty people innocent. That would make God a phony. That would make God a liar. That would make God a very bad judge. Scripture says God hates unrighteous actions. Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 17. Just one example among many. Justice demands that the guilty suffer a penalty and that the innocent do not suffer a penalty. If there's no penalty paid for the wrong, there is no justice. Abraham picked up on this very thing in Genesis 18 and verse 25 when God was about to destroy the cities of the plain Sodom and Gomorrah and he thought to himself, wait a minute, my nephew's down there. What if there's righteous people in that city and you wipe out all of the people? And he said this, He said, far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? He was freaking out. If God justifies the unjust, we would conclude God himself is unjust. So God had to make a way to express his merciful love change our standing from guilty to innocent, pronounce us righteous, justify us, but remain a just and righteous judge at the same time. He had to find a way to do that. This way is grounded and based on the work of Jesus Christ, his death and his own personal righteousness. Positively, Christ became our own righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. Jesus came down to earth. He lived that one perfect life none of us could live. He acquired the needed righteousness by his life and then offered that life on the cross as a sacrifice. Negatively, the righteousness that God uses to justify us is not our own. 
God does not add the righteousness of us to that of Christ. God does not add the righteousness of Mary or another saint to that of Christ. He doesn't do any of that to produce enough righteousness because there's enough righteousness in Jesus Christ alone. All righteousness of men is excluded in justification. Not one shred of anything good that I have done in my life has ever been used in God's pronouncement of me being innocent. Paul acknowledged that in Philippians 3, 8, and 9. Paul wanted to be found in Jesus, he wrote, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. In other words, I obey the laws and therefore it's my own righteousness, right? But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It's someone else's righteousness. It comes from God, but it comes to me through faith. That righteousness we get from Jesus is called, and here's a big word, don't be intimidated by it, imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. That means that rather than God changing us or making us live righteously first, God reckoned or God counted us to be righteous by thinking about Jesus' righteousness and applying it to our own account. Imputation is a bookkeeping term. Just think of the accountant with his glasses on hovering over the books. You want an example of imputation from everyday life, read the little letter of Philemon in verse 18. There Paul asked for Onesimus's financial debt to be reckoned to him. He basically wrote this, if Onesimus has wronged you in any way or if he owes you anything, charge that to my account. That's imputation. I'll take the blame. I'll make the payment because he can't. The debt of the slave was imputed to Paul's account. That's imputation. Likewise, we got put in our little ledger of our life the rich life of Jesus Christ, even though we didn't live that life. His righteousness now counts as ours. Wayne Grudem again. When we say that God imputes Christ's righteousness to us, it means that God thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us or regards it as belonging to us. Isn't that beautiful? Christ's righteousness is not infused inside of us, which we take and then practice and get better and better and better until finally we live a really good life and then God says, you're living a really good life and now I will justify you. That is the false gospel of Rome. We do not believe in infused righteousness. We believe in imputed righteousness. If it's infused in us, then we get some of the credit for it. But if it comes from the outside and it's imputed to us, we get none of the credit for it. It's all of grace, all of Christ. And I want to bring you to a text of Scripture that makes this explicit. Turn to Romans chapter 4, and we're going to look at this for a few moments. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. The righteousness that saves us is not inside of us. It's not inherent righteousness. It's not infused inside of us. It is imputed to us. I know that's a lot of I words, but listen to them and think about that. Romans 4, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? In other words, when we read the Old Testament, how did Abraham get a right relationship with God? He lived before the law of Moses was even given. How did he get right with God? Verse 2, 
For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the imputation of a righteousness outside of Abraham's life. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. In other words, when you go to work and you get a paycheck, you don't really have to say thank you. You earned it, right? Hey, give me my paycheck. I earned that. (laughs) But to the one who does not work, does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. That's what Abraham found. That's how Abraham was saved. Paul purposefully links justification in verse 2 with imputation in verse 3. In Romans 4 and verse 6, he extends the same thing to David in the Old Testament. To justify the ungodly, verse 6, means to impute a righteousness from outside of that person. In fact, there is a double imputation that happens. We call that an exchange. One is imputed here, the other is imputed there. What do you mean a double imputation? Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ takes on our guilt. That's one imputation. We take on his righteousness. That's the other imputation. Double imputation. It's all by grace. I want to make sure you understood what I just said. So I'm going to ask you a question. What kind of righteousness are we justified by? Something inside of us, inherent, or something outside of us, alien? You just made me a happy pastor. It is an alien righteousness, meaning that not that it's from Mars, but it's from Christ. Again, R.C. Sproul in his book, Faith Alone, Sola Fide declares that the ground of our justification is solely the righteousness of Christ. It is a righteousness that is extra nos, he likes Latin terms. It is apart from or outside of us, not a part of us, before faith. Now, there's still one more step to understand. If we don't produce our own righteousness, how does it get given to us? If it's Christ's, how does it come to us? And the answer is, by faith alone. Faith is the instrument or the means of bringing justification to us. Faith is not the ground of justification. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the ground. Jesus has the righteousness that allows us to be pronounced innocent. We don't. So faith is the pipeline from Christ to us. Justification is received through or by the pipeline, by faith. Faith is not a work of righteousness. Faith is not an achievement by us. Faith is not a merit badge. Faith is not the price of obtaining justification. Faith is the only means and the gracious means by which God allows us to have Christ's righteousness credited to our account. In other words, God picked faith to be the only instrument of justification because it was the only thing that would work 
along with grace. There's no virtue in your having faith. You couldn't even muster the faith to believe. Romans 4.16 says, For this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. If Christ's righteousness came to you any other way than besides faith, then it couldn't be according to grace. Faith links us to Christ who provides the righteousness we need to be justified. Strictly speaking, we don't even believe in justification by faith. We believe in justification by Christ. When we say by faith, we mean by faith in Christ. Faith simply wraps itself in the righteousness of Christ, for we have none to offer ourselves. When it is said that justification is attained by faith in Christ of necessity, that means by faith in Christ alone. For if it is not by faith in Christ alone, it cannot also be by grace alone. And if it is not by grace alone, it is not by Christ alone. One more question to make sure you understood this. How quickly does justification come to a person? It comes immediately, instantaneously. The second that you believe in Jesus Christ, though you are a foul sinner, God's perfect righteousness of Christ is immediately credited imputed to your account, and your standing before God is that of innocence. You know how I can prove that? Go to Romans 5, verse 1, and we'll close with this. Romans 5, verse 1, and you'll see the past tense of justification. Therefore, having been, having been justified by faith, we, now we have a present tense, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I believed and I was justified. And what do I have now? I have a right relationship with God. I have peace with God. If you thought your relationship with God came any other way, you just got corrected. You've been believing a false gospel, and you came from false teaching. And now this morning you have the opportunity to step into the true Christian faith and believe in the true gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is the dividing line between a true church and a false church, a true parachurch organization and a false parachurch organization. The Church of Rome, the church of Rome has denied this doctrine officially for 500 years. To this day, they deny it. It doesn't mean that every Roman Catholic out there believes what their church teaches, so be gentle with them. But the Church of Rome is not a true church. And if you think it is, you are defending a false church. And, and I warn you, in the most severest kind, this is not a small issue. This is at the center of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The liberal churches, the ones I came from, the Protestant churches, have denied this doctrine for over 100 years. They are false churches. The cults have many problems, but they deny this as well. Unfortunately, evangelical churches are not defending this doctrine now. And parachurch organizations ignore this doctrine as if it's not important. If you ask the elders, why don't we work with such and such an organization? Or can we get along with such and such a church? Or can we do evangelism with this church? Or what about joining in with that? The answer is going to be, where do they stand on sola fide? That's the first thing I want to know. Do your homework. Because if they don't articulate this gospel, what are they doing? What are you doing? Don't you want to uphold the true gospel? Isn't it worth living and dying for this? I could put up with a lot of false things. 
This is not something God wants us to put up with. Develop your convictions around the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for these dearly beloved. Help them to grow deeper in understanding the tricky ways Satan has tried to mask and imitate the true gospel, both in church history and outside of the church. Help us to be on guard, to love, perfect, and uh, to love, protect, and defend the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for it that saved our souls. Thank you for declaring us innocent even when we were guilty. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.